there's a shopping centre in the middle of Watford, and in the shopping centre there is a, a climbing wall activity experience that you can do. And I went to do this with my two older boys a little while ago. And when you get there, they strap you into this harness uh, with a rope attached to a thing on the roof. And the idea is you climb up the wall, you hit a button, and then you just let go. And the rope kind of lowers you down. And I was trying to lead my sons by example. So I climbed up the first wall, which from the bottom doesn't look very high, but from the top actually feels pretty high. Um, I hit the button, and then in my head, I said to myself, now let go. And uh, I, I said, look, this rope is safe. This has been tested by experts. In fact, it will be illegal for them to send you up to the top of the wall only to give you a rope that doesn't work. So you're perfectly fine, Andy. Let go. That's what I said in my head. And my body screamed at me, do not do it. You will die, right? So I had this internal wrestle going on. Eventually, my head won, but it took a while. I let go. Sure enough, the rope lowered me slowly to the floor. Uh, then I went on to the next wall, which is a little bit harder. You climb up to the top, you hit the button. And even though I know the rope is safe, I've just experienced that myself just a moment ago, the whole battle begins again. Let go. No, do not let go. You will die, right? And so I went through this multiple times. And eventually, the final challenge of this thing is what they call the stairway to heaven, which are these um, pillars that are like lampposts that have no handholds on them anywhere. You stand on the first one, then you move on to the second one, they get progressively higher until you're standing just on the top of this really tall pillar with nothing to hold on. And the idea is at that point, you just step off. And um, my son, Josiah, he did it. And I was not to be outdone by an eight-year-old, so I also went up the stairway to heaven, and I found myself standing at the top, having just spent most of the last hour knowing this rope would hold me, and once again, the battle began. Um, it's fine, no, don't do it. And in the end, what happened is I sort of fudged it, so I kind of flopped off. I didn't step off like they told me to, I just flopped off. And what that meant is that my, my, my weight was off, and so I started to swing down. I remember it like a conker on the end of a string, kind of crashing into these pillars on my way back down to hell. And hell for, was, this, was this bunch of children just giggling up at me as I sort of smashed all the way down in the shopping center back to the floor. And I remember afterwards just feeling so irritated at myself that I couldn't, that it was like this battle was going on between the head and the heart all the time. And I just couldn't convince my heart that this thing is safe. And I've thought about it a lot since and thought, actually, that applies in many parts of life. There can be this disconnect that exists between what we know in our heads, the information that we've received, that we store away, and actually what we really believe in our bellies, in our guts, and in our souls. And when it comes to the truths of God, there is a disconnect sometimes for us. We can, we can hear a truth and we think, yes, I receive it. I can articulate that. I can explain that to somebody else. But then to really believe it, to really rest in it, to be able to sort of step off and know that this truth will hold, even when it doesn't look like it will, that is a lot harder. And the more I follow Jesus, the more I've been discovering that the key to it is not actually acquiring more information, though there's a place for that. The key is to deeply digest some of the truths that we already know. And there's no greater truth to digest than the truth of his love, the truth of who he is. How many of us have sat in church and, and heard of his love and yet found ourselves calling it into question? 
Um, and if there's an antidote to that, to the fact that we know his love in our heads, but we don't really trust it in our bellies and in our souls, then the antidote in part is at least is soaking ourselves in his truth. Like you might put your body in a bath and just let it soak. It's putting our minds in this truth and just allowing ourselves to absorb it once again. So that's what I want to look at this morning, a truth. And this one you can find in Romans chapter 8. I'll start reading from verse 35. Paul writes this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And here's the truth. The Lord of heaven loves us. But it's not just that. Uh, It's that he will always love us. And so we are welcomed when we say yes to him into an embrace and into a love that is as wide as the ocean and as high as the stars. We get to experience and enjoy that relationship. But here's the truth to savour for us this morning. is that we will always be able to enjoy this relationship, this love will never, ever go. Um, These kids in Hawaii, the reason I'm speaking on this again is because it stirred me up. They were asking this question. And what they really needed and wanted was the blessed assurance that Jesus was theirs, that they had him forever. But it's not just kids in Hawaii who ask this question. It's elderly people in Watford. And I know this because when I was working in Watford General as a chaplain, I had this chat with this beautiful old woman called Margaret who told me of her life and her husband Terry and how they'd been going to church all their lives. And then just as I was about to leave her, she took my hand and she held it and she wouldn't let it go. And she she welled up a little bit and there was a quaver in her voice and she just said the thing I think she'd wanted to say for the whole conversation, but she hadn't had the courage. She just said to me, sometimes I wonder whether I've done something. Terry, he thinks he's all right, but I wonder if I've done something. And, and, and what she was saying was, she knew she didn't have long before she met the Lord face to face. And she was lying there in hospital, fearful. And she was fearful that she would get to, as it were, the pearly white gates. And he'd say, no admittance, no entry for you, Margaret. I'm sorry, you've done something. That he would, he would reject her. Now that conversation happened years ago, and I, I've never forgotten it. And one of the things I've wondered over the years is how is it possible for somebody to sit in church week after week after week, hearing the Word of God, hearing the Scripture, and still at their darkest moment on their deathbed, shortly before they meet Him face to face, they're still worried whether they've done something. They're still not assured of their salvation. How is that possible? And then I look in the mirror And I see some of that in me sometimes that I have when I have a bad week, questions about whether or not I've done something. And if we find ourselves with that question, then we need to come back to this truth, Romans chapter 8, that nothing can separate us from his love. Why is this a question, why is this a truth rather that we find hard to absorb? 
I wonder if part of the answer to that is because we are conditioned by the world that we're a part of. So uh, think about it like this. When I went to Hawaii in America, they drive on the wrong side of the road. And it's quite hard to drive on the wrong side of the road. And um, Mike and I, you, you obviously know that there's a little bit of rivalry between the two of us. But I have to tell you, there is no point at which the two of us come closest to physical blows as when I am driving a car and he is backseat driving the car. Um, and he is the world's worst backseat driver. He would say that's because I'm the world's worst frontseat driver. But on this one, I'm right. And the way that he does his backseat driving, I don't know if you've ever driven somebody around like this, is not always by making comments. I mean, that's annoying. But what really bugs me with his backseat driving is the flinching. It's the flinching. So he doesn't actually say something because he's trying not to be a backseat driver. But I can feel the vibes. Like, he just goes... <sighs> Like that, right? And I'm aware of the vehicle. I've seen the vehicle. I'm taking evasive maneuvers. But like, but, but anyway, you can tell I, I speak from the heart on this, on this matter. And uh, anyway, the reason I say that is because driving in Hawaii is hard. Because I'm used to driving on the left-hand side of the road, like all of us. So you have to concentrate because this is not how I've been raised to drive. It's not how I've been taught how to do it. So you concentrate and you concentrate, and it's particularly difficult when you're under pressure, when you're tired, when you're stressed, when you've got a backseat driver like Mike sitting next to you. That's when it's difficult. We're conditioned, and we've been raised to know love as a certain thing. And what we, we've experienced it as, even those of us with the best of families and the best of upbringings, the love that we have experienced is but a faint shadow of the love of God. And most of the love that we've experienced is not love at its best. It's love that's hot and cold. It's love that's conditional. It's love that's full of complications. And so we come to know a God of love, a God who accepts us as we are and, and who, who never takes his love from us. And when we concentrate on that, we can just about hang in there. But what happens is stress comes and pressure comes and irritating backseat drivers join our lives. And when that happens, we can so easily flick back to autopilot of thinking his love is like ours and it's conditional, but it's not. His is a love like no one else's. That's part of the reason we find this hard to digest. Another reason is that we have an enemy and he's real and he's out to get us, just like he was out to get Jesus. And Satan's main weapon are lies. Jesus calls him the father of lies, and he is a brilliant liar. And one of the things that he loves to do is he loves to call into question this truth. Um, I'd never noticed this until recently, but Satan's first words in the Bible, his opening line in the drama of Scripture is this. Did God really say did God really say you shouldn't eat the fruit from that tree? And he's been doing it ever since. And, and I picture it like the word of God, like a seed planted in our hearts. Satan's like this little bird that comes and tries to snatch it before it can take root. He tries this one on Jesus. So Jesus is at the baptism and the father speaks over him. You're my son whom I love. The very next thing that happens is Jesus goes into the wilderness and Satan comes and says, if introduces a tiny two-letter word that changes the whole sentence, if you really are the Son of God. He questions it. So we struggle to absorb the fact that this is a love that will never be taken from us because we've never met a love like this and because we have an enemy who's constantly questioning it. And yet, Paul writes, I am convinced. I know. Without qualification, 
without hesitation, I am utterly sold on the fact that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, anything else in all creation can separate me from his love. And he reminds me a, a little in this of one of my kids, uh, Zachary, the, the crazy one. I mean, they're all the crazy ones, but he's extra crazy. And he's three. His favorite game at the moment is to go up onto the top bunk of his bed and say to me to stand opposite him. And then what he does is he goes like that, which means stand back a bit. Does it again, stand back a little bit more. And then literally he's getting me to move furniture so I can stand even further back. And only when I'm really far away from him does he fling himself at me off the top bunk, knowing, convinced, trusting, not like me on top of the pillar, but absolutely sold out on the fact that I, Daddy, will catch him. And so far I have a 100% record. But he is getting heavier and heavier. Um, he, that's, he, just, he lives that. And that's Paul. This is Paul in this moment. He's not questioning whether the love will be taken from him. He's flinging himself, trusting himself, resting in the blessed assurance of the love of God. And one of the pictures that the scripture gives us is that God is our father and we are his kids. And just picture that, like a father, even, even our relationships. Think of a father who hasn't seen his son for a couple of years. Imagine him waiting for him at arrivals at Heathrow. Maybe COVID's kept them apart for a while and he can't wait to see his boy. And then his son comes through that arrivals bit and the father runs to, to embrace him. Do we think he's just going to hug him quickly? Or do we think we'd, we, he'd hold him for a long time? Do we think he'd stand at a distance and pat him on the shoulder? Or do we think he would hold him close? Well, we have a father who's run to meet us in the person of his son, Jesus. God, the Father Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who've come and endured the suffering of the cross and everything else, that they might hold us. So do we think he's going to hold us for a long time or just a little one? Do we think he's going to hold us at a distance or do we think he might hold us close? Do we think that anything now, having him endured all that he went through, anything now can take us from his embrace? Nothing can. Nothing will. Another picture we get in the scripture, this is a weird one, but I love it, is of our relationship with God is that Jesus is the bridegroom and we, the church, are the bride. And marriage at its best is meant to be for always. When you stand with a wedding couple, I do this from time to time as a vicar, and they make their vows, what they say to each other, uh, this is at least part of it anyway, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death is due part. And so the reason a wedding is a massive humdinger of a celebration is because we're celebrating their love there in that moment, yes. But also what we're doing is we're celebrating their vow of future love the commitment that they're making that come what may, in the good times and the bad times, in the highs and the lows, through the light and the darkness, they will be there for one another for always. And there's this beautiful moment in the ceremony in the Church of England anyway, where as a vicar you wear this kind of scarf thing and you take their hands as a couple, you join their hands together and then you get your scarf and you wrap their hands in the scarf. Then you lift their hands up. And always in this moment, when I do this in a service, I'm, I'm imagining, um, there's that bit from the, the Lord of the Rings films where Gandalf stands on a bridge and goes, you shall not pass. Do you know that bit? None of you do. You do. All right. I mean, I don't say this at the wedding, but this is what I'm thinking inside. When, when I lift their hands up, right? You lift their hands up and then the vicar says, having wrapped it all up, he says, those whom God has joined together, 
let no one put asunder. That's Anglican speak for nobody mess with this. And when God comes to us in the person of his son Jesus, it's like I imagine it anyway, like he takes us by the hand. And then it's as though he wraps up our union with the gift of his spirit, the spirit of adoption, the fellowship of the spirit, the counsellor. And then he, he holds it up and he doesn't say, let no one put asunder. What he says is, no one can put asunder. No one can separate. Nothing can separate. Nothing can take my bride from my hand. That's what he says. And we hear this, this truth. And even having heard it, something in me says, yeah, but. Paul's convinced, but I say, yeah, but. What if I make a mistake? Do you ever think about that one? What if I mess up? Okay, I'm doing okay now, you know, but, but what if I go off track? And the truth is we can distance ourselves from him, but he will never distance himself from us. And our hope, our blessed assurance doesn't rest in the fact that we will never get it wrong. There's no confidence to be found in that statement. It rests in the fact that he will never let go. That despite the fact we will get it wrong sometimes, his grace is sufficient for us. Think about if you were to walk into the sea with a little child and you were holding it tight to keep it safe. That The strength and the security in that union doesn't come from the child's hand, it comes from ours. In the same way we hold him by the hand and the confidence and the hope we have doesn't come from our ability to hold on, although it's important to grip on. It comes from his ability to never let go. And the cross, what it does is it covers everything. Because we say, well, what if I do something really bad, something that really shocks him? We can never shock him. It might be bad, but we can, it's not going to catch him out. He saw it happen. He still gave his life for us. When we were at our worst, he came to meet us. Mike and I, we were chatting about this a little while ago, and I remember him saying something. Most of what he says, I try and forget, but this occasion, it stayed with me, right? He looked off into the distance. We'd just been talking about how God covers everything. And he just said, you know what, Andy? The plan of salvation uh, is amazing. He said, when God planned salvation, he factored in our stupidity. And I loved it. I wish I could have gone back in time to Margaret and stood there at her bedside as she held my hand and her, her eyes welled up with tears. And as she told me, sometimes I wonder, Andy, whether I've done something. And I wish I could have said to her, Margaret, when God made the plan of salvation, he factored in your stupidity. Just like he factored in mine. It covers everything. We're his for always. Nothing can come between us. Nothing we do or don't do can separate us from his love. And that's not to say sin is unimportant. God is a holy God and he hates it. But it's just to say that his love overcomes. Nothing can separate me from his love, Paul says. I'm convinced. But I say, oh gosh, I'm not sure. Because if nothing could separate me from his love, why is everything as it is? Why, are, why is my life so painful? Why is it that my kids are not doing what I hoped they would do? Why is it that I'm bereaved in the way that I've been bereaved? Why is it that I'm suffering from a chronic pain? Why has my mental health gone down the pan? Why am I struggling with anxiety? Why do I have depression? Why are my finances not as they want, I want them to be? If, and the enemy whispers in our ear, if he really loved you, 
if nothing could separate you, then it wouldn't be as it is. And we think the same. We agree with that sometimes. And uh, for this one, there is no easy answer, but I am familiar with a Christian who his whole life he just tried to tell people about Jesus. It's what he lived for. Uh, and his life was difficult. So he, he, many times he was going from one place to another. He ended up in accidents. Some of them were life-threatening. And he was just trying to get somewhere to tell folk about the Lord. There was other times where he, he was subject and victim to violence um, to the point where he was actually one time beaten up so badly that people who were attacking him thought they had killed him. Uh, he, in his life, he experienced fear many times, real deep, terrifying fear. He, uh, he kept going, he kept going. At one point, more than one point, he, ends up, he ended up in jail, uh, in prison because of what he was trying to do. And eventually, his life doesn't have a kind of a happily ever after ending because eventually he died by being executed. And the way he was executed is he had his head chopped off. As a Christian, you might be familiar as, as well because his name is Paul. And he's the one that wrote Romans chapter 8. He's the one, having been through everything he'd been through, that wrote these words, knowing the truth of these words. And sometimes what God's love does is it picks us up out of the pit, picks us up out of the bad situation, the bad relationship, the bad set of circumstances. And his love places us in a place where all is well and all is good. But other times, what God's love does is it stays with us. It doesn't change the circumstances, but nor does it leave us in the circumstances. He stays with us in the darkest of places and in the hardest of times. And in, the, in those moments where it feels like all is horror and all is despair, he stays. Emmanuel, as we sang a moment ago, God is with us. I read just a week ago about this guy who became a Christian in the 70s in Vietnam called Hien Pham. And he uh, was a Buddhist by background, converted, came to know Jesus. He worked with the American military as a translator. And later, um, he worked for the mi um, missionaries. And then um, when uh, the communists took over Vietnam, he was persecuted for his faith. He ended up going to prison multiple times. And there was one time he describes where he was in prison for a really long stint. And they were trying to break him. And so they wouldn't let him read anything in English. They just gave him communist propaganda in French and Vietnamese. That was all he was allowed. And then there was one night where he's just broken by it. If God really loves me, how could he let this happen if there is a God? So he decided, tomorrow, I'm not going to pray. That was the first time since he'd given his life to Jesus all those years before. I can't do this any longer. I'm not going to pray. He woke up the next morning and he was assigned uh, toilet cleaning duties which was horrendous. Their toilets were not as ours are. They didn't have flushes. It was just disgusting. And the, the used toilet paper was put in a tin can. And he was just cleaning that out. And as he's cleaning out this, the, all the used toilet paper, he saw some writing in there in English. He didn't see what it was. He just glanced at it and saw it was English. So he quickly, so desperate was he for something that was in English, wiped it and put it in his pocket, shoved it in there. And uh, later on, he describes the moment where after his cellmates had fallen asleep under his mosquito net, in the darkness, he got out a torch and he pulled out this precious bit of paper that he just found in the, in the toilet can thing. And he unrolled it and, and he saw, top left-hand corner, it said, Romans chapter 8. And starting to, to shake, he began to read the words. And these are some of the words that leapt out at him from that page. And we know 
that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And he wept as in that moment the Lord Jesus does what only he can do. Speak the exact truth you need to hear through his word whenever you need to hear it, wherever you happen to be. The Lord spoke to him. And what we will find as we journey through life, and I know we have, but sometimes I need to remind myself of it, is that sometimes it's in the darkest of moments that he is nearest, that his love is most evident. Certainly when we look back, it is. And there is such joy, strength, security and peace that comes from digesting this single, glorious, beautiful truth. What can we not face when we know the reality of this? I finish with this. I heard of a Christian, Scottish Christian from back in the day called Hugh Kennedy, who when he was dying, called for a Bible. And his eyesight had gone by this point. And so he said to the people who brought him the Bible, open it up to Romans chapter 8. Take my finger and place it on the words where it says, neither life nor death. He said, is it on the words? And they said, yes, it is. And then he said this, now, God be with you, my children. I have had breakfast with you and I'll have dinner with my Lord Jesus Christ tonight. And then he died. What an exit, right? What a way to go. I'm already planning my own Bible verse now for like what I'll do when I'm about to go there. But it's like, he, he, he just knew. And it changed everything. And so for us, a question to ask as we go um, from this place this week is, ask ourselves again, can anything separate me from his love? Can death, he's defeated it. Can life it can't, no matter what it throws at us. Can angels? They don't want to. Can demons? They flee from his name. Can powers? Nothing is more powerful than him. Can the present? He's here with us now. Can the future? He'll be there with us then. Can the heights? They just bring us closer. Can the depths? They just bring him nearer. Can anything else in all creation separate me from his love? And the answer is no, because it's ours in Christ Jesus. The God of love became one of us and he came near to us that he might hold us. And not only that, but he will never, ever let us go.